It is very easy to live a life in this world without humility. In fact, it's quite rewarded. If one is proud, if one is self-confident, if one is capable, they may get ahead quite well in this world. But they will meet their end just as all of us will. It is quite easy to live a temporal life without humility. But Christian, we are called to much higher things. We are called to much higher ideals and we are called to much higher virtue than to look upon this world and see what we can get out of it for our own gain and glory. The expressions of the gospel do not find home in the one who is self-confident. The expressions of service to others who are Christians does not find home in one who is proud. Matter of fact, from Scripture, one of the highest vices is that of pride. And one of the most central aspects of the Christian life is that of humility. And humility, often seen for itself, is not thinking of yourself lower than you are. Humility is not gained by comparing yourself to people who are better than you. No, the inevitable outcome of that road is to separate from such people so that you see yourself as one of the highest. Or to surround yourself by those who are less capable than you. The inevitability of that road is pride. No, true Christian humility is only seen when one is worshiping the holiest of God. When we see his attributes on display, when we understand his word and his revelation to affect our hearts and to challenge us and to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and depend on him for any graceful lifting of up. True Christian humility is not found in merely seeing our human interactions. True Christian humility is seen as you look in the face of God who made all things. And so I want to challenge you this morning with the message that we get and the teaching that we get from John the Baptist in today's passage because he gives us one of the most astute observations regarding temporal ministry in the face of an eternal God. To put it in his words, he must increase and I must decrease. Such is the nature of godly service. Such is the nature of the Christian life submitted to their king. I so want that to be the description of all of our lives. So that when we see somebody in the supermarket or when we see somebody in our homes, we interact with them humbly, not because we are doing them a favor, not because we are required to do it, but because we know our God. And by comparison, we know how low we are. 
To one who is worshiping God as he is, it is very difficult for pride to arise in that heart because they are constantly reminded of the nature of him who lives forever. And we cannot abide pride in his face. We can see the effects of this by very nature of even those who are not Christians that will one day bow the knee. It will not be because God breaks their legs. It is because that is the natural response of a sinful person in the presence of overwhelming glory. How much more for us who have been brought from the dead and set on our feet that we may stand on the rock of Christ and establish ourselves and say, this is no pride in myself. This is of no value in and of itself. Only by the grace of God do I stand. And only by the grace of God do I speak. And when we come to the Scriptures, only by the grace of God may we see and hear. Pride has no business in the life of a Christian. I can assure you if it is a sin that somebody is currently dealing with, they are not spending time with their Lord. Or maybe spending time with a mirage of Him. A God who is there to meet only our needs and to serve us rather than to be worshipped by us and to establish our needs. Believe it or not, God is not here for our glory. We are here for His. And John the Baptist bears this out, and I want us all to learn this this morning. John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God and His words, such as our habit. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. After this... This referring back to the most popular passage in all of Scripture. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all, and he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
Our Father, we're grateful for this text. In it, again, deep things and broad things. We pray the meaning of this text be delighted in by your people and that what you are doing in this text be applied to our lives in ways that we cannot even imagine without it. We thank you, Father, for the words here of John the Baptist who lent testimony to your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his testimony. We thank you for his words. We thank you for his doubts. We thank you, Father, that he is not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. We pray, Father, that we would arise to such virtue and that such humility would bear out in our lives. We pray in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Difficult text. Difficult. But I want to make a beeline for the reality of what is being taught to us. John the one who's writing the Gospel of John, not the same as John the Baptist. This gets a little confusing. John is including this story here right after John 3.16. There's a condemnation that has sat on those who do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. But again, the love of God has been revealed into this world in the manner in which he gave Christ so that all those who believe on him would be saved. That is a subset of humanity. For the rest, the wrath of God remains on them. And John is using this picture to draw out the reality of what it looks like to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a great deal of humility that comes with this. Because we do not look at God saying, God, you love me, That's, that makes sense because I love me. Everything about me is awesome and it makes perfect sense that the creator of the world would think so highly of me. That is not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. No, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation is to say, there is nothing that I bring to this transaction save sin and sin alone. In fact, I cannot even make myself born again. Look at the whole context of John 3. This is leading up to some of the more narrative sections of John, but he's bringing it all out. Look at the context of John 3. He's talking to Nicodemus. And he says, Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of heaven, even though you think you're very perceptive in knowing where my signs are coming from. You cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you were born again. Nicodemus, how much involvement did you have in your first birth? Tell me, please. How many of you requested to be born? Not a one of us. And Nicodemus got the picture. The same thing for those who are born from above, born of the Spirit of God. The Spirit moves where He wills. And when we see salvation, like I can tell you the moment that I was aware that God had implanted faith in me. I'll never forget it. It was about 2.30 in the morning. I was 11 years old. I didn't request that. I didn't seek it out. My eyes were opened and I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. What happened before that? What happened before that was I heard the gospel. 
What happened before that, even well before that, is God brought me to life so that my eyes would see. What happened before that is that God called me. What happened before that is even before I was born the first time, God knew me and my name. What happened before that is God created the world. What happened before that is God chose me in Christ before the foundations of the world. Can you imagine that for thousands of years of human history, God knew something about 1994 that nobody else knew, and that was that he had called my name since before the world was. I learned it in 1994. The Spirit goes where he wills. And Jesus tells us, and John includes this testimony, don't you know, look at the wind. Look at the wind. Well, the natural response is, I I can't. It's invisible, right? You see the effects of it. That doesn't mean that the leaf started moving just because the leaf wanted to move. Why is it the leaf moved? Because God made wind to be a picture of how his spirit works. Excuse me. How his spirit works. And Nicodemus' mind is blown. That's not how this really works. It should be really simple, right? It should be like all of the religions of the world. God comes down, gives his law, and then you get to work. Every false religion in the world. Even the Jews knew that the law was not sent to give them life. How could we ever do such a thing? How could we ever accomplish such a thing? A burden, as the Apostle said, that none of our fathers could bear. How could we ever establish that that be the burden even for Gentiles? But it makes sense, doesn't it? It's a really simplistic thing where God would give a law, we follow it, and therefore we're followers of God. The problem is is that God gives a law and we don't follow it. And death follows on our heels. And so the law does not become for us salvation. The law becomes for us a reason to cry out for mercy. And Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus over this and saying, how is it then that one may live forever? How is it then that one may have eternal life when the judgment of God comes on those who break his law? God loved the world in a very specific manner. And he demonstrated this by giving his son as a satisfaction in place of those who have broken his law. So what does that teach us, number one? One, we recognize we're lawbreakers. We recognize what we have done. More importantly, what we haven't done. We recognize that all of these things that God says about us are true. We are sinners Why? Because we are born that way. And the only way that we may have life that doesn't end is to believe on Jesus. Why? Because that is the humility that God lifts up. Notice humility is one of the first virtues in salvation. We do not think of ourselves as low compared to others we see God as high and recognize we don't even have a shot. We don't compare ourselves to how we were when we were younger. 
Because I'll tell you this, as you mature, you're actually going to be better behaved than you were if you're a normal person. You're going to be better behaved than you were younger. But see, that's where most people go. I'm not perfect, but I'm getting better. Or I'm not perfect, but look at these people that are worse than me. Or I may not be all bad, but at least my good outweighs my bad. Look, all of these things just lead to pride. Every single one of them. None of them look to Christ for salvation. I assure you, you can find somebody worse off than you. That's broken more laws. That's done more sin. I assure you, John the Baptist could do that. You know why? Because Jesus said something about John the Baptist that was very unique. There is no one greater born among women than John the Baptist. You go, first of all, that's weird. And second of all, he's dressed in camel's hair and a leather belt and eating locusts and honey and baptizing people in a muddy little creek. That's the best that humanity has to offer? Jesus says, yes. But... Even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Look at the humility that is required inside salvation. To say the best of us doesn't have a chance at the lowest rung of the ladder. This is why with the apostles we declare that it is only Christ that may save us. Only Christ. Why is it that He must increase and we must decrease? It is because it is good that we decrease and it is good that He increases. Why is it good? It is because it drives us to our knees to say there is nothing still in my hands that I bring. Folks, I have been a Christian for nearly 30 years at this point. I can look around at my life and go, well, here's something I'm better than I was when I was in my 20s. Here's something, I guess this habit's a little bit better, but if I'm really honest, there's other habits that are a little bit worse. Thank God that my position in Christ is not dependent on my performance as a Christian. And I hope we can all praise God for that reality. Because as we see that we decrease and He increases, our focus does not get filled up with what God is doing in my life. Our focus gets filled up with what God is. And what He has said. And what He is doing, not just in your life. What He is doing in His world. And we rejoice that He is saving somebody that we don't like. You ever witnessed that? Watching God save somebody that you don't like very much? I've seen it. It's frustrating and rejoiceful and frustrating. I can understand Jonah sitting there bemoaning the grace of God and how gracious he is because he's far more gracious than I am. Because some of you people in the kingdom of God, I kind of wish you weren't. And there's a lot of people who wish I wasn't. And I am glad that it is dependent on a God who is far more merciful than you are and far more gracious than I am as to establish our right to become the children of God. 
When these people come to John to ask him about this, John does not hesitate to say, it does not matter that Jesus is out doing this. He is the bridegroom. I'm just his friend. Would that we would all witness that way. Jesus tells us the same thing. If they reject you, don't... Let me, let me give you the modern paraphrase, shall I? Don't lose your minds when they disagree with you. You know why? They're not rejecting you, but me. You have only the responsibility to ensure that the message that's been given to God's people is faithfully passed on. It's not up to you to save people. Do you know why? You're not the Spirit of God. You don't determine where the Spirit of God goes. Not in evangelism, not in worship. You do not just raise the level of tempo and find more Spirit of God. It doesn't work that way. God goes where He wills, when He wills, how He wills, to whom He wills. Do you know why? Because He's God. And we are not. And He must increase and we must decrease. And there is nothing in us that can earn His presence. Not after 30 years of being a Christian can I look at anything in my life and say, you know what? I've made a good home for the Spirit of God. Not one area. And man, have I tried. I share the same emotions that David shares in Psalm 139. To my utter dismay, wherever I go, there God is with me. Why? Why make a home with one such as I? Why when we are gathered together, disparate as we are, is God here with us? It is not because you have done something well. It is not because you have avoided something wrong. It is not because you have shared the gospel this week. It is not because you have followed the law of God. It is not because you prayed certain prayers. And it's not because we prayed for this service ahead of time. God goes where he wills, when he wills, how he wills. And what he has said is, those who are gathered together in my name, those who are sitting together before my word, bathed in the blood of Christ, having consumed his body and drank his blood and are in Christ God is in their midst. Can you imagine looking at that and saying, therefore we must be the best people in the world? No, it has the opposite effect, doesn't it? It has the opposite effect because while it is a privileged place to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, it is a humbling place to be. Because God is in our presence and we hear His words and we see this example from those who are closest to Christ saying, I have nothing. I want for nothing. We say the same thing with David, don't we? The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I want for nothing. What if God were to make me rich? What if God were to make me poor? Let us be content. Regardless of circumstance, what if God makes me healthy? What if he keeps me sick? Let us learn to be content. Why? Because God is with us. 
Is that not Christ's first title? Emmanuel, with us to the end of the age. Never to leave us. Never to give up on us. Why? It is not because we are naturally worth it. It is because he has made us worth it in him. And he has saved us. And he has promised to us life without end. And so when these people come and talk to John the Baptist about them, about Jesus going out there and baptizing, gaining all this fame, and everyone is going to him to be baptized, weren't you the original baptizer? Weren't you the one that made it popular and now he's going to perfect it and everyone's going to him and his fame is spreading all about? In fact, even some of your own disciples have left you to go follow him. Doesn't that miff you out just a bit? They said, Rabbi, he who was with you, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered and said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He knows where his call came from. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And just to clear it up, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, meaning Christ, and the bride is the church. The friend of the bridegroom, meaning John the Baptist, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Look at the outcome of humility. Joy when everything's going bad. When everything's going down, the opposite direction of cultural success. Look, look, look. His fame is going up. Yours is going down. John the Baptist is like, that makes me happy. You know why it makes me happy? Because I have my priorities lined up. It's not about me. It's actually about him. In fact, the only reason I was doing anything was because he was before I was. Even though he's younger than me, he's older. It is one of the most remarkable expressions here. And you got to understand, John the Baptist was the first one. What they're addressing is you recognized who he is. You're the one who called out to him and says, yeah, you bore me witness. What is it that John said about Jesus? Behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We discussed it when we were back there. Most people read that and go, yes, it's salvation. Oh, my friends. No, no, no. Salvation does not wipe out all the sin of the world. It's both salvation and the judgment of God. Let me hear it another way. Look at the Lamb of God who removes all the sin from the world. Do you see the emphasis? There's two ways to remove sin. Salvation and judgment. And he's going to bring both because that's the role of the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God bears the sin of his people. The Lamb of God executes judgment and wrath on those who will not be under his blood. And so when we hear this reality that those who believe on Christ should not perish but have eternal life, we must understand that while the first time God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, we know that that is not his only advent and is not his only coming. For the first time, he sent himself 
as a sacrifice for many. But the second time he will come with great judgment on those who do not come to salvation, to the one in whom only is found life. This is why John the Baptist is saying, look, it isn't about me. I'm not the Lamb of God. I am not the light of the world. I can't do what he is sent to do. There's nothing that I can do to bring that about. I have one job, and that is to point you to him. Isn't that the essence of evangelism? We do not say, hey, is your life not working out right? How about you come to our church? Everything will work out right. First of all, no, it won't. We'll just give you our problems while they give us their problems. That's not how it works. Notice the reality of evangelism is pointing to Christ, not to self and not to church. Evangelism is pointing to Christ. Your life isn't working out? Of course it's not. Because the one who made life told you that is not how it works. You cannot go about this world for yourself. You will find that while it will bring you temporal success in the material world, it will bring you spiritual demise. This is why those who seek to get wealthy are punctured through with many pains. Because wealth, rather than Christ, fills their vision. Their future is defined by what they can get and by what they have. And it brings spiritual bankruptcy. And whether it's money or whether it's substances or whether it's relationships that come and go out of our lives, or whether it's good things like family or church, if all of these things are seen from a prideful perspective, they will bring you great sadness. Look at John the Baptist for a second. Imagine being in his shoes, leather sandals, uncomfortable, in the desert. Your job was given to you before you were born. Your job was to point people to Christ and to baptize unto repentance those who are in your ethnic world the people of uh, Israel, and to point them to Christ whenever he came about. And until then, baptize people. Oh yeah, live as a hermit in the wilderness. Eat kind of bizarre things. Dress strangely. Be an outcast. And live on the outskirts. And point people to Christ. And so what is it that John the Baptist says more than anything? I'm not the Christ. I'm not the light. I'm not him. I'm not the one you seek. I'm not Elijah. I'm not anything. That's the Lamb of God. I'm just his friend. And when he is famous, my joy is complete. He must increase. And by exchange, I must decrease. And then he tells us some things about Christ. Said he, look at verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. 
Remember, John has already included this aspect. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing was made without him. Everything that was made was made through him. Why does he say these things? It is because even John the Baptist had taught about this. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now whether this is John the Baptist talking or whether it's John who wrote the gospel editorializing, we don't know. All we know is that it's in Scripture. Christ is above all. And the ones who belong to the earth speak in an earthly way. I can't speak to what God is doing in heaven. May I extend this even to the life of the church? I cannot even speak to say this is what God is blessing right now. Because sometimes God's blessings fall in strange places. And sometimes difficulties likewise fall on the faithful. Do not be so quick to see your struggles as a sign that God is displeased with you. That is not what struggles mean. Do not be so quick to see your successes as God's blessing on you. That's not strangely how blessings work. If we were in something other than the gospel, we would understand that if we do something good, we should expect the blessing of the Lord. But the reality is much different, isn't it? A little bit more complex. Sometimes the unjust have their crops rained on. And sometimes the faithful establish droughts in their lives. And all of us meet our end untimely. What hope is there in this world outside of Christ? The simple answer is none. The more complex answer is little hopes that disappoint. Little ones. Well, if I did this right or that right, then a certain amount of money will flow my way or a certain amount of success will flow my way. That must be how God works in his economy of heaven. Yet, but that's not how it works. And Jesus shows us that directly in the upper room the very night that he established communion, doesn't he? What does he, as the rabbi in the room, do but put on a loincloth and wash their feet and say, it is this kind of humility that leads my people. You should be doing this to each other. The greatest among you should be everyone's servant. And here we see it in John the Baptist's life. Look at verse 32. There's a lot of pronouns in here, and so I'm just going to fill in the names of who he's referring to. Uh, we'll start in verse 31. Jesus, who comes from above, is above all. John, who is of the earth, brings to the earth uh, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Jesus, who comes from heaven, is above all. Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet none of us receives his testimony. Whoever receives Jesus' testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For Jesus, whom God has sent, utters the words of God, for 
God gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into the Son's hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Your sin will end one day. For the Christian, that is a joyous occasion. It is one of the reasons I'm looking forward to death. Don't don't hear me all despondent. No, no, no. I'm looking forward to death. One, because my sin ends that day. And two, because there's a promise of resurrection where my sin stays in the ground and my soul and my body are reunited in sinlessness because of Christ. That is a good day, my friends. Our sin will end one day. And it's one of the reasons why I love the wrath of God that hates my sin so much to keep it in that ground. Can you imagine living forever in a sinful state? This would be the best that we could ever muster for like eternity. Terrible. And I mean it. I hate my sin almost as much as I hate your sin. I'm sure none of you hate me at all. I'm great. (laughs) Whether you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation or not, your sin will end one day. Hear it. In salvation... Or if you do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, in wrath. This is the Lamb of God, folks. He is going to remove sin from the world. But before he destroys it, he has planned a way of salvation for those whom he has called. You are not in charge of somebody else's choice of salvation or wrath. God is. You are responsible for simply one thing. It's the same thing that John the Baptist is responsible for. He must increase, I must decrease. I will preach him, not me. His life, not mine. And when I give testimony, it's not what God has done in my life. Who cares about me? When I give testimony, I'm going to take you to who Christ is. We care about him and what he has done and what he has accomplished and who he is because that's the only hope that doesn't disappoint All the others do. I could teach you how to live a nice life. I promise you, you don't want a nice life. I promise. Because nice lives end. And nice lives tend to deny their own sinfulness. I want to show you a humble life. And watch this. It's not me, and it's not mine. See Christ his humble life. Think about this for a second. This is why John starts off by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes out and says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. And then he shows us the person of Christ. And you realize, as you read it, slowly it starts dawning on you. This is the God who made the world. And he's walking around amongst people that are just as sinful as I am, and he's not beaming them to death. 
He's walking around a sinful sea of humanity and he's not slaying them wherever he walks. Instead, he is kind. And he is sitting down with tax collectors and sinners and calling them to repentance. Bringing salvation to bear in places that the nice people would never seek to even tread. Nicodemus was one such nice person. And it was very confusing to hear the depths of humility that salvation requires. It was very confusing for him to hear that following God was not merely a matter of saying, you know what, I'm just going to get really serious about following the law of God. It's not a matter of that at all. You can't even bring it about, Nicodemus. You must be born of the Spirit of God. You can't do it. And all the pride in the world and all the attempts in the world will never succeed in wiping away our sins. There is one way to life. His name is Jesus. And if there is any other way to life, it is an imposter. And that includes you and me. When we preach Christ and Him crucified, It does not mean that we say, here's a nice story. I hope you agree with it. If not, whatever. At least get to work on doing the important stuff, which is making sure your life is nice. I would much rather someone who is nothing like me, who holds none of the cultural importances that I do, that simply trusts in Christ for salvation and nothing in his own hand or heart. I would rather us be different on every other subject known to man. I don't want people that remind me of me. I don't like me. I don't want people that remind me of you. I don't like you. We love Christ. And all those little differences between you and me are nothing compared to him. I don't care what happens. I don't care what ethnicity you are. I don't care what nationalism you are. I don't care what color you are, what things you think. We're all wrong. Christ is who we preach. And Christ is what we say. It is his humility that we put on display, not ours. It is his glory that we seek, not ours. It is his purpose that we follow, not ours. It is his mission that he gave us, not us. Our church is about to enter a bizarre transition phase, whether you believe it or not, or know it or not. When a gathered assembly switches where they meet, it changes a lot of things. It changes perspectives, it changes different aspects about fellowship and everything. There's a lot of things that are affected by that. There is one thing that I can declare to you as one of your elders. This church will not seek to preach Christ crucified, excuse me, will not cease to preach Christ crucified no matter what changes come. And if this church does, you may well cast us out on a line. Toss us to the world. Because if we preach something else, or ourselves, or a new fancy building, or anything else, God have mercy on our souls.
We have been given a gospel. It is a great gift. It is also a great responsibility. Let us walk as Christ walked amongst people, humbly, and serving God alone, and saying only those things that God has given us to say. May God give us grace, and may God give us bravery, because it requires both. Let's pray. Our Father, even now after a combined several centuries of following you that are in this room, there is yet nothing in our hands we bring. It is your grace that we plead, your grace that brings us life, that same grace that sent Christ into this world. We pray, Father, that it is nothing in our purview and nothing that we accomplish that we focus on. That we do not seek to raise up one person over another or put down one person under another. But that we seek to raise Christ up high as he is. That we show his humanity as humbly walking with you, our God. May that same humility live out in our lives. May the grace of Christ be what we seek at all points. May we delight in what he has done, what he is doing, and the much harder one, may we also delight in what he will one day do. For he will end sin in this world, and until then, we pray that you find us faithful to the message that you have given us, faithful to the commission that you have sent us with. For we know Christ is faithful to never leave us, that he has established for us to make disciples of all nations. For that is as far as his authority is extended, even to the uttermost parts of the heavens and the earth, and his word that we proclaim. We thank you for these things, Father, in your Son's name.